Welcome to the Clemson Dubcast, Friday, December 17th. Clemson football team back on the practice field several times this week. Man, it looks and sounds a lot different without Brent Venables there. More insight on Wesley Goodwin, the new defensive coordinator or co-defensive coordinator, chief play caller, plenty of other team and recruiting related nuggets from Paul Strilo and yours truly at TigerIllustrated.com. Never a better time to sign up than right now. My good friends Blake Smith and Brooke Archenhold have been part of the podcast since the beginning, way back in August of 2018. They have an accomplished team of personal injury attorneys at Parm Smith and Archenhold, based in Greenville. They are Clemson people, and their skillful attorneys have decades of experience in complicated litigation matters, taking a special interest in medical malpractice, nursing home abuse, and neglect car accident cases that have left the individuals involved in serious trouble. For a free consultation at Parm Smith and Archenhold, call 864-990-4581 or online at parhamlaw.com. That's P-A-R-H-A-M law.com. Solero Communications, formerly known as Tandem Payment, is a full-service integrated electronic payments provider powered by leading-edge technology. Solero provides a wide array of merchant solutions, simplified payments. They make onboarding, taking payments, maintaining risk management and compliance, and getting support quick and easy. At Solero, they're all about helping you achieve sustainable growth as a business. Taking payments isn't the only thing your business needs. With Solero's solutions, you can manage inventory, sell products and services via social media, schedule staff, track sales, get reports, and much, much more. Find out more about Solero at solerocommerce.com. That's C-E-L-E-R-O commerce.com. Another loyal supporter of the Dubcast is Blackacre Law Firm in Greenville, a subsidiary of Parm Smith and Archenthold. Blackacre helps South Carolina residents achieve their dreams of home ownership by providing experienced professional representation for real estate closings. Attention to detail is crucial in real estate law. Blackacre is committed to making sure nothing gets by them preparing residential or commercial closings. Blackacre also offers estate planning services for their clients in the Greenville area. Find out more about Blackacre at 864 Two six three five zero seven. Okay, two monumental developments over the last week or so in Clemson football, and who better to talk to on the Oklahoma end and the Virginia end than Barry Trammell of the Oklahoma newspaper and David Teal of the Richmond Times Dispatch? No two better people to talk to about the Venables to OU and Tony Elliott to UVA developments than these two guys. This is really good. Here we go. All right, joined by Barry Trammell, the institution in the state of Oklahoma. Um, how you doing, man? Well, I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right, hoping things settle down a little bit. <laughs> but uh, but we're doing good. We're doing good. So before we... How's uh, things, how things in Clemson? Oh, man. Um, well, a lot different than they used to be. Uh, you know, we've had like... Yeah. A, we had, had a decade of total serenity here and as far as coaching changes and such and then a bunch of stuff hit at once including the athletic director leaving so yeah pretty crazy yeah well good luck with the cyclones they're they're a tough out i can tell you that they they haven't had a great year but man they play tough barry do you live you I guess before I hit record you were mentioning you had just taken a, one of your a grandchild to, to breakfast at a diner in Norman. Do you live in Norman? Yeah, I do live in Norman. Okay. I actually grew up here, so never really left. Even when I went, it's only about 20 miles to downtown Oklahoma City, so. 
So it works out well. I live on the north side of Norman, so I can get to Oklahoma City easy, and Stillwater's not a bad trip either, so it works okay. So what has been the sort of the general reaction? I say general because I'll pop over on the message boards the last week and a half or so uh, on a fairly on a daily basis, and one day it's Brent Venables is the second coming, and then the next it's Ted Roof. Are you kidding me? Have we made a mistake here? <laughs> Venables is an idiot, so <laughs> I'm trying yeah. to get the finger on the pulse of the. Well, the, the, the masses still are are in love with Brent Venables. Um, a lot of people did question the Ted Roof hiring. I don't know exactly what they wanted. Uh, Brent Venables, as defensive coordinator, is not available. He's off the market. <laughs> so I guess that's what they wanted. Um, I don't. I, you know, last time OU hired a defensive coordinator, they went and got a guy from Ohio State, um, Alex Grinch. So I guess they wanted a you know a, a big name coordinator from another Power Five. But um, you know, cooler heads I think realize that Roots a fine selection and he, he should be okay. Uh, but nothing has chipped away at the at the adulation for for Venables, uh, and um, part of that is because some people liked him from the old days, and part of that is because as soon as you tear down one, you know, as soon as you tear down one idol, you got to go find another. So they've you know they've shifted all their allegiance over to Brent, and that'll last until you know the first time he loses to Texas or Oklahoma State. So. Um, but no, I, I think I think the uh, the euphoria over Venables is still very strong and probably will be for a long time. Is a big part of that the natural reaction when your coach just abruptly leaves in the middle of the night and you feel jilted and you naturally, I guess it could go for a a relationship, you know, like a you know. A college or whatever boyfriend girlfriend marriage where you, in the next in the next person or, or entity you look for loyalty you look for family you look for somebody who's, who's going to be committed to you and uh and and, and who's going to handle things in a in a better manner is, is that sort of part of the feeling there yeah i think so and brand is such a known commodity um, when he left 10 years ago he was not real popular with some of the fan base just because that was near the near the start of the offensive explosion in college football, and they you know they weren't holding every opponent to ten or twelve points, and uh, he caught a lot of flack for that. And clearly, the defense wasn't where they wanted it to be, or or Bob Stoops wouldn't have brought his brother Mike back to help out. But um, but. A lot of people did realize that Brent, even in 2011, was an outstanding coordinator and very, very good and at the top of his game. And 10 years later, people have, even the critics of Venables, have realized they were all wet. They've seen his work at Clemson. They understand his 30-year track record of of being in fabulous programs and doing unbelievable jobs. And it, But it does go back to, to what you said, which is, you know, Oklahomans went to bed or the, the, the crimson side of Oklahoma went to bed one night uh, 
uh, thinking Lincoln Riley was was God's gift to football, and you know a day later he's he's the arch villain. So when that happens, when you feel jilted, when you feel uh, when you feel rejected, it's sort of natural to turn to somebody you know, somebody who's you're comfortable with. So. Um, you know, the the emotion over Riley is sort of part of the problem in college football in that we make literally Greek gods out of these guys. And when when they let you down, you don't come to your senses and say, well, we shouldn't have made a Greek god out of the guy. Mm-hmm. You look for another Greek god. <laughs> and, and here's Brent Venables, who's basically basically the perf- the perfect candidate at Oklahoma. I mean, if there was no Brent Venables and you, you had to go search for another head coach, you would hope you would run into a Brent Venables. You've got Oklahoma ties. He's personable. He's passionate. He's different from Lincoln Riley and that he's got the defensive pedigree. And, you know, anytime you get jilted, you sort of look for the opposite. He's, he's uh, a guy that's familiar a guy that everybody, even if you didn't like his 2011 defense, you realize this guy's a great coach. Um, you know him well. You trust him. You know his character. He's not likely to pull up Lincoln Riley. He's incredibly stable. Eight years at K-State, 13 years at Oklahoma, 10 years at Clemson. This guy's not been bouncing around uh, looking for the next best thing. So it, in many ways, he's the perfect candidate. So there's reasons to be excited about him, but it sure is easy to be excited about a guy after you've been, you know, gone through the emotion of losing what you thought already was the perfect coach for your school. During the, I guess, week that elapsed between Riley's departure and the hire of Venables, can you take us back to, in your mind, based on what you were picking up in your reporting, uh, your feel for the situation, did it feel like Venables the whole time, or did it feel like maybe they were going to take some swings with some established head coaches? What we were picking up was they wanted to talk to Luke Fickle, um, but Fickle, I guess, after after the championship game, uh, told them he wanted to wait till after the playoff. Anyway, just curious of what your sort of intel was during that week, sort of the, the, the progression of it. Yeah, I think Brent was always the natural number one choice. But Joe Castiglione, the OU athletic director, wanted to do his due diligence. And he had two candidates, one Luke Fickle and the other Dan Lanning, the defensive coordinator at Georgia. Both of those guys in conference championship games that could – you know, have playoff implications. So neither one was going to talk, I don't think, before that. So so Castiglione had to wait until Saturday evening or Sunday morning to engage with those guys. Um, I think during that time, he got, he, he had, you know, more, multiple conversations with Venables. It became even more clear that Brent was the guy the only knock ever against Brent was why hadn't he become a head coach yet? Um, Oklahoma is not is not uh, worried about your head coaching experience. 
Um, in fact, he probably moved to the top of the list if you're not a head coach. Yeah. Since oh, I'm serious. No, since I, 19, I hear you. Since, yeah. since 1936. In 1936, OU hired Biff Jones away from LSU. Since 1936, OU, I think it's uh, 14 head coaches. Maybe it's 11. I can't remember. But somewhere in the, in, the, in the low teens of head coaches. They've hired one guy who had ever been a head coach before. And that was Howard Schnellenberger in 1995. And it was a disaster. And they've always, since then, they've always hired assistant coaches, often from within the program, usually on the young side in their 30s. And it's usually been a home run. They hired, uh, they hired Tom Stidham, who took them to the Orange Bowl in the late 30s. Nobody remembers him, but he did a wonderful job. They hired Jim Tatum in 1946. He stayed one year, turned the program around, got crossways, went to went to Maryland and built a fabulous program. He was succeeded by Bud Wilkinson. They hired Bud Wilkinson in five minutes. And everybody knows what Bud Wilkinson did. Chuck Fairbanks, uh, uh, Barry Switzer, Bob Stoops, Lincoln Riley. None of those guys had ever been a head coach. This chasing the head coach thing has never been the Oklahoma model and I think they would have looked at a Luke Fickle I think they would have been interested in a Matt Rule or somebody like that but I think the the natural inclination is always hey let's just go find let's go find the best assistant coach who's ready to be a head coach and and hand them the keys and it's worked doesn't always work I mean they've hired John Blake that was a disaster they elevated Gomer Jones in 1964. That didn't work, but it almost always has worked. And that made Brent Venables the natural, the natural number one pick. Um, I just think they just, you know, they, they waited because they felt they, they wanted to check out Fickle. They wanted to check out Lanning, but Brent was clearly, was clearly the ideal candidate from the start. So I covered him for a decade. You covered him for 13 years when he was an assistant there. Can we compare notes on, I'm always interested to hear what it was like for other reporters, you know, dealing, dealing with other coaches, developing relationships. Were you able to, were you able to get fairly close with him during his time there? I I have a a, a recollection. I don't think it was written by you from when he left uh, in 2012 to come here, I forgot which reporter it was, but they said he was like really emotional and was given even the reporters hugs and, um, just sort of felt a deep connection there. What, what, what was he like when you, when, when you covered him during his first uh, stint in, in Norman? I, I, I would describe him as passionate and personable. And here's what, Here's here's how I would lay it out. It was 1999 when he got here, or maybe it was. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we. I think he finished out the bowl game for Kansas State, if I remember right, 98. So uh, early 99, and that that's 22 years ago, and things have changed in 22 years. I don't know how they do it at Clemson, but in Norman and Stillwater, 
it's not like it used to be in terms of access to the assistant coaches. We talk to them every once, every once in a while. But 22 years ago, you talk to the offensive coordinator or the offensive line coach or the secondary coach or whoever. You talk to them about any time you wanted to. Um, you know, most weeks after practice, um, throughout tour days, any about any day you wanted. And somebody like Brent was personable and easy to get to know. And uh, he liked to talk. He liked to chat with us as much as we like to chat with him. So we did get to know him. And it's not like that anymore. You, it's much tougher to develop a relationship. But 22 years ago, it happened. And he was 28. And uh, the same the same mannerism of speech and the same kinds of things. He was saying that at 28. You know, Bob Stoops has a saying that, People don't change. They just get older. Hmm. And he described Brent that way the other day. And I think he's right on, you know, we've now been around Brent a couple of times since he got hired. And it's just like talking to him at, you know, in, in the spring of 1999 or at the cotton bowl in 2001 or whatever it was. It just, he, he, he looks older. He seems older, um, still youthful looking for a 50 year old, but, um, but no, he was a, he was a developer of relationships, and um, it, it, it's so different today. It's a little bit of a throwback, and you know who knows what'll happen going forward. But yeah, his his uh, you know we, we had a press conference on signing day Wednesday, and um, I'd forgotten this about him, but I think he went thirty five minutes, and I think we got. 12 questions, maybe 11. I can't remember. <laughs> so he's av- I did the math. He averages like three minutes an answer uh, per question. And that counting the question. And we got a couple of long winded, you know, journalists, but most of us, <laughs> most of us can get our question in in about 10 or 15 seconds. So Brent, and, and, and I remember thinking, Oh, that, that's why he used to go on and on. Now, most of what he says is interesting. Yeah. Um, but it's just, you know, somebody like Stoops gets to the point pretty quick. Brent, Brent, will, Brent will go into pretty deep uh, on a subject, and that's what he was doing 15 years ago, 20 years ago, and that's what he's that's what he's doing now as the head coach. So, uh, yeah, he's he's got a very good ability to make relationships with people. Um, modern coaches don't either can't do that or don't prioritize it. I think that's just you know. It's been interesting to get to to get to see Brent here in the last week or so, because he's been gone ten years. I was around him, you know, at the at the Russell Athletic Bowl and then the Orange Bowl, those back to back years. Chatted with him at length both times in Orlando and Miami, but but uh, you sort of you sort of lose track of of a guy, and you you sort of put him into a pocket of the way he used to be. So it's it's been interesting to see him now. And when I think of Brent Venables, I still think of the, the 35 year old, you know, fiery coach whose whose neck veins are bulging out. <laughs> and we could see a little bit of that when we watch Clemson games, but you know, the, the, the Tigers don't until the playoff, the Tigers don't play a bunch of close games. So if you're watching Clemson, you generally go to something else pretty quick because they got it well in hand. So we, you know, we, we sort of have the picture of Brent as still that 35 year old, 
Now we're seeing him at 50, and he's the same guy. He's just aged a little bit, and it's it's been interesting to 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 sort of see how time marches on 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 somebody who you knew so so well, but haven't been around here for at least a decade. You know, he and I were having a conversation over the summer, a casual conversation about all the the challenges that would come with being a head coach. And we were both sort of marveling at Dabo's ability to compartmentalize and his, his, his knack for his, his really advanced organizational skill. And Brent, he acknowledged to me, he says, you know, I'm not as good at that stuff. And maybe, you know, that would probably be harder for me uh, if I were a head coach and just to give you an example, every early every week during the season, the coordinators are available um, to the media. And the offensive coordinator, Tony Elliott, would always come in. His time was 11.45 sharp, usually. And he'd be right on time, like clockwork, every week. Venables, you never knew. <laughs> you never knew. I mean, it could be 12.30, or it could be 2.30, and we're sitting there waiting around, and, and the, the poor communications guy literally would sit outside of his office and just wait for him to be ready to come to come do his media duties. And so that's going to be an interesting thing to watch because he was a great defensive coordinator, kind of like that mad scientist type who would lo- loves nothing more than to be watching film for 19 hours a day and, you know, diagnosing tendencies and things like that. And so the, the delegation, um, how, you know, how, how much of the challenge is that going to be? I, I'm going to be fascinated to see um, how that evolves. And I'm, I'm guessing that when he was an assistant there, he was probably the same way. I mean, you, you mentioned the veins bulging out of, his, out of his neck. And you just wonder how, if he's going to be able to turn it off enough and to separate himself enough to be what a head coach needs to be? You know, it's, it's a great, it's a great question you asked because it made me think of Wednesday, the press conference, you know, the, the regularly scheduled press conferences by the OU head football coach or, or on the statewide radio. So, you know, they, they start with actually a, the, the radio guy counting down the minute and, and introduces, to the press conference, like like uh, a, a real production show or something, and so it's it's supposed to be by the book because you got these radio stations all over the state, people that got to fill content. They got to push the button at noon or one, whatever time it might start. Well, it's supposed to start at one thirty the other day, and uh, we were about seven minutes late. Mm-hmm. We got Brett showed up about one thirty-five, and they got him up there about one thirty-seven. So I do think that's going to be an adjustment, what you mentioned. I do, uh, going back to a previous topic, <clears throat> I think that's one of the advantages of hiring Ted Roof mm-hmm. as defensive coordinator. Uh, you know, People said, well, why'd they hire that guy? Or why'd they hire an old guy? I think Roof's 58, which you know, he's, he's younger than me, so I'm not going to call him old. <clears throat> but I can sort of imagine... Brent saying, you know, I can't do all the things I used to do. 
I'm not going to be able to go into that defensive meeting room and sit all day with those guys and, and put in my input and, and tell them what I want and work out the game plan. I, I've got other things to do. And I need somebody as defensive coordinator I can trust that I can just turn it over to him and let him know he's going to do that, do what I do, what we want, and put out a, a, a great product. So I can I can sort of see why he went with a veteran coordinator. You know, at Oklahoma, Riley was his own offensive coordinator, and it was not uh, much of a collaboration. It was a Lincoln Riley production, which means he's in that offensive room all the time. And that means other things fell through the cracks. Somebody else had to do them. Somebody else had to, whether it was, you know, they had to stand on top of the academics or the, or the compliance or, or meeting with whoever. And to me, hiring Ruth was sort of an admission, an acknowledgement by Brent that, you know, all that mad scientist stuff and that, you know, let's spend 80 hours a week figuring out our defense against this team is not, can't happen. Somebody else has to do that. To me, that was an encouraging sign of what you're talking about, that he realizes, you know, his, his daily routine, his involvement with a football team is going to have to change. And the good thing about Brent is, you know, we uh, I talked about that stability, the eight years at Kansas State, the 13 at Oklahoma, the 10 at Clemson. That was all with each place was just one head coach. Bill Snyder in Manhattan, Bob Stoops in Norman, Dabo in Clemson. And that's three pretty good mentors, three pretty good guys to follow, all different in a myriad of ways. But, you know, it, it, to me, that's one of the great, pluses of Brent Venables is if he just he just calls you know the best of each of those three coaches I mean then he's he's set for life um but whatever he learned from those guys that's I think that's one of the things the delegation the the time management all those things he shouldn't have to learn that I think he's probably already learned that and knows what he has to do as a head coach. You know, the, one of the most, the things I'm most fascinated to see is, is just the visual of the first game that he's on the sidelines. And I guess we might even see it in the spring game is his demeanor because it's so hard to picture him as the, you know, the typical figurehead, you know, your arms folded, you know, you're taking a measured approach to what you're seeing because he's just like a, everything we've seen of him on a sideline for the last, I guess, 23 years has been this, this caged animal who's having to be pulled back to the sideline. And it's so funny. We were, I had Ben Bullware, the former linebacker on the podcast last week. And he said his most vivid memory of playing for Brent Venables was coming back to the sideline after he messed up and seeing the white foam that would form in the corners of, of Brent's <laughs> mouth because he had been screaming so much. And he said he it, it just terrified him to see the white foam. And so I'm fascinated to see how he now carries himself in a football game. 
Just the demeanor. He won't change overnight. I think we can be sure of that. Um, I think he will have some, I think he will have some, some fireball moments and maybe lots of them. I think there, but I do think that especially the longer it goes, I do think he'll, he'll learn to settle down a little bit and know what his role is. You know, Bob Stoops talked about this very thing, um, that when he was at Florida, he brought a young, uh, assistant, not an assistant coach, but it was actually a female who was working with the Florida program. And she came to Norman, uh, ended up marrying one of the OU strengths coaches and it's still around. But anyway, one of her jobs was the get back coach just for stoops and uh-huh. would, and would, you know, sort of reel him back in when he was defensive coordinator at Florida. Cause he was, I don't know if people remember, but he was pretty fiery, especially in his early years. And he could, even as head coach, he could get pretty worked up on the sidelines. But the longer it went, the less, you know, sort of more under control he became. And I sort of expect the same out of Brent. Um, he's a smart guy. He's a sharp guy. Um, you know, he's, somebody else can yell at the linebackers, basically. Uh, that's somebody else's job. And... Um, He'll, he'll have his moments, but I think he'll, you know, as, as head coach, you know, you don't have time to, you know, you don't have time to, to worry about what, what the defense just did. You got, you got to move on. You got your special teams and you're going to have the ball, whatever the case may be. And I think he realizes it's, that's really not going to work out uh, for him. So I think he's going to be able to move on from those things. But he's not going to be Bill Snyder just sitting over there, you know, like an android with no emotion. He'll be he'll be emotional. He'll give the refs an earful. He'll you know he'll rally his troops. Uh, but I I don't think it'll be quite as theatrical as what we've seen uh, these last well for you guys ten years at Clemson and what we saw when he was in Norman the first time. You mentioned fans when he left after the 11 season. Uh, a lot of them were helping him pack his bags figuratively. It was a lot different within the family, so to speak. Uh, he shared with me, I guess two years ago, he, he actually, we sat for hours and he shared his life story to us, which is an incredible story of a lot of difficulties overcome. Um by the way, I read it and it was it was fantastic. I I mean I knew a bunch about Brent Venables, Venables, but I also learned a lot. So I applaud you. That was that Thank was outstanding. You. That was outstanding reading. Yeah, you know what, Barry, and this is a sort of an, an aside, uh, sort of a inside baseball journalism type of topic. But when I sat down to write that, I I just felt like I need to I need to get out of the way. Like I don't, I don't, I don't need to include my writing in this at all because it's so good in his own words. Yeah. And so it's basically each of those stories. It was like an intro, and then just straight transcription of it in his words. Like I just felt like, man, yeah. this. You don't do this justice if if you pick and choose quotes here and there, and you try to, you know. Put right. your own, put your own sort of spin on it. It just felt right to, yeah. To I, let thought, it all I, thought, I, I thought it was great. It was basically a, it is basically an autobiography, and I thought it was just, I, I thought it was perfect the way it went. And um, 
And it was also really in, uh, symbolic or emblematic of Brent's personality because it wasn't always linear. Yeah. He'd, you know, he'd, he'd think of something from 10 minutes ago or 30 minutes ago or five pre years previous in his life and, and jump back to that. Yeah. It's, that's sort of the way he talks sometimes. Yeah. So I thought that was, so I thought that was even a, uh, you know, a great element to, to not even rearrange the, the narrative that much. Um, so yeah, I thought that was, I thought that was outstanding. The two most interesting things of his leaving there to me, thinking back are how Clemson became aware of him or how Dabo became aware of him. So I, I guess as it goes, Brent had watched them watch Clemson from afar and was really impressed with Dabo and, but he had a relationship. He had no relationship with Dabo. He did have one with Terry Don, who in the fall of 08 interviewed him for the head coaching job at Clemson and was extremely impressed with him to the point that Terry Don a few years ago told me, I asked him, I said, if Dabo wouldn't have worked out during his audition, who do you think he would have gone with? He mentioned Brent's name first, which was really interesting to me. But anyway... Dabo was already far down the road with some other candidate to, to, to replace Kevin Steele after the 11 season. And then Terry Don said, Hey, I just heard from Brent Venables. He might be interested. Here's his number. And Dabo folded up the piece of paper, put it in his pocket. Didn't really think much of it, but then called Brent that night. And then they had like a three hour conversation and then just totally connected. And that was the really fascinating element to that then another one was brent relaying that his final days in norman when he decided he and julie decided to come to clemson they had already come to visit and were just blown away and they thought this is the place and we're gonna we're gonna leave he had already told stoops he was leaving well then stoops comes back i think with a uh another uh sort of sweetening the pot a little bit i guess uh with his contract and then so he decided he was going to stay, and he even called Dabo and left a voicemail saying he was staying at Oklahoma. Dabo calls him right back and says, whatever you do, he's, Dabo was taken off on a recruiting trip. He was on a runway. He said, whatever you do, don't, don't make a decision until you talk to me after I land. Well, then Brent goes home right at that, you know, right at that moment. He walks in. Julie, he said, was cooking spaghetti. And Brent says, well, it looks like we're staying. I think I made my decision. And she's the one who said, wait a minute. Do you remember how we felt when we were at Clemson? You know, and she's the one who changed him back to coming to Clemson. So those are two two elements of that story that are just really fascinating. And I guess what I started with was, you, you know, where Oklahoma fans were happy he was leaving. There were no bridges burned between him and a lot of the folks at OU, deep affection uh, between him and a lot of folks, including Castiglione, whose wife, by the way, another element of this, he was on his way to Clemson the final time, and in the Oklahoma City airport, he runs into Joe's wife, and they both break down crying, and he was wondering, gosh, is this a sign that I made the wrong choice? But really, uh, really just remarkable layers to that whole to that whole backstory. Yeah, and... <clears throat> When we talk about discontent with Brent Venables, we're talking about, I mean, it wasn't a small percentage, but we're talking about sort of the, 
the crazy side of fandom. I mean, the people that really understood football, no football, their opinion of Brent Venables hadn't changed. Nobody on campus had anything ever then and now or in between bad to say about Brent Venables. He was always held in the highest regard. The problem with the whole story is the is the personnel, the, the way the personnel issues all came back. Mike Stoops had been uh, in a, one of Brent's mentors, not just Bob Stoops, but Mike Stoops. Um, Mike uh, it gave him a place to live when he was a graduate assistant in Manhattan. Went to bat for him along with Bob to join the staff full time. They were they ran the defense together clearly with Mike in charge at K State. They came together when they when they come to Norman with Bob. Bill Snyder wanted Brent to stay and run the defense. Brent has said I wasn't ready and I knew it. I wanted to I wanted to stay with the Stoopses. So they were they were tight tight tight. But Mike gets the head coaching job at Arizona in 2004. He lasts seven and a half seasons, which at Arizona is a pretty good run. He gets fired. Um, he comes back and hangs out on the sideline for the bowl game down in Phoenix and uh, became pretty clear that Bob was interested in bringing Mike back, getting the band back together. And um, the, uh, you know, Mike Stoops, has, he's like every coordinator. He runs hot and cold with the OU fan base. But in 2011, he was sort of seen as, hey, the, you know, the, the new Messiah can come back and help us. And, um, and so Bob hires Mike. He fired a coach for the first time in 12 years. He'd been a head coach 12 years and had never fired an assistant coach. And he did it after the 2011 season to make room for Mike coming back. And uh, with the stated opinion, with the stated announcement that Mike and, and Brent would be co-coordinators and run the defense. And, you know, three weeks later, Brent goes to Clemson. And there's always been the feeling that, you know, that Brent felt like he was being demoted and that Mike was going to, you know, take over. Um, the reality is, uh, and I think you had this in your, in your, uh, in your, uh, Venables, uh, piece, uh, two years ago. But the reality is Mike was okay with saying, Hey, Brent's in charge. Brent can call the plays, all that. Uh, but the the appearance and the impression was that you know Mike was going to come back and fix this OU defense, and Brent left just because he felt demoted. Now I don't think that's exactly true, but I do think that Brent felt a little like maybe the time had come. Um, he'd had great success, unbelievable success. You know, the, and he, he, when he was running the OU defense by himself, he had great success. So There's not a question about his credentials. But I, I think he realized, you know, going to Oklahoma after eight years at K-State was a wonderful experience. Look how much I grew. Look how much I learned. Look how much I developed. And I think he thought the same thing about Clemson. You know, exciting young coach, getting things going. Um Beautiful part of the country, new part of the country, different conference. I can, I can uh, spread my wings even more. And there's always been a, you know, an underlying feeling that Brent sort of left in a huff, or felt 
you know, disrespected. I don't think that was the case. And I know it wasn't the case on the stoop side. One of the memories I have is that after that 2015 season, uh, the Orange Bowl semifinal when Clemson you know, uh, trailed by one at halftime and then came back and whacked the Sooners 37-17. I was chatting with Bob and Mike Stoops about an hour after the game, and we were walking through the tunnel somewhere around the concourse to the bottom of the stadium, and they were headed somewhere. And Bob snapped his fingers and said, oh, I forgot. I got to get out on the field. I got to go find Brent. Wow. And Bob and Mike went back and went onto the field and Brent was still out there celebrating or lingering. I don't know what he was doing, but they found him on the field and they embraced and congratulated him. And at that point, watching them both with Brent, I could tell there was, there was no hard feelings. I don't think among any of the three, I think it was a case of, you know, just the time had come when it'd been best for best for Brent to, to experience something else. And what he experienced was fabulous. You know, one of the great runs a coordinator's ever had, and they, you know, they just lost a heartbreaking semi national semifinal, and yet they were happy for their friend mm-hmm. and and their longtime colleague. So, at that from that point on, I knew that Brent Venables, his feelings toward the Sooners, his feelings toward the Stoopses, the Sooners, and the Stoopses' feelings toward Brent really hadn't changed. It was just life happens, and sometimes you got to try something new, and it worked out great. Worked out great for Venables. We can debate how great it worked out for Oklahoma, but um, from that point on, I always knew that Venables. I didn't know if he'd ever be the head coach at OU, but I always thought it was possible um, that if he ever jumped in the water of head coaching, and and OU needed a head coach, I always thought this is a this is a distinct possibility. One last thing, and I'll let you go. Another thing that. It can't really be ignored. In his last eight months in Norman, he lost his brother to alcoholism. I guess one of his brothers, because he had two. And, he lost, and then he lost a player, Austin Box, right. to an overdose. And so I can't help but compare that to Michael Jordan going to baseball after losing his dad. Tiger Woods, you know, doing a lot of different things, including the Navy SEALs after losing his, just sort of the the doing something totally different, pushing yourself totally out of your comfort zone. I can't help I – mean, I don't think Brent ever said that to me, but I, I can't really uh, – you can't really discount it either, just uh, those two just traumatic events happening so soon before he made that decision. Yeah, you know, and I don't guess that's quantifiable. I guess we'll never know. But yeah. it, when, you, when you do experience loss and – especially when it's someone whose time hasn't come, whether it's a sibling when you're in your 40s, I guess maybe, I can't remember if Brent was 39 or 40 when he made this decision. But, you know, you're 40 years old and you lose a brother and then you lose a 21-year-old linebacker. And you start, it makes you think about life and makes you think about your own journey and makes perfect sense that that would, that would have brought about a time for, for Venables to to make a, to make a move. Um, I can tell you this. Um, I, I don't know what, what would have happened if Brent had stayed. Um, I think Oklahoma would have had great success because Stoops is a big time coach and that's just the way it is. I don't know if Lincoln Riley comes in and is the offensive coordinator, 
but it's if Bob Stoops in the summer of 2016 or sorry 2017 had decided to retire and he did and Brent Venables was the defensive coordinator I think it's likely they would have yeah. promoted Venables yep. at the time I, even if even if Lincoln Riley comes in and is a whiz bang offensive coordinator now Riley was sharp he was he was incredible he was a great choice in 17 but I, if Brent had still been here, I think they would have turned the keys over to Brent Venables. Yeah, would have made too much sense. Barry, um, this has been a pleasure. I really appreciate you sharing so much of your time with us. I know you're you're a busy man, of course. So um, this has been great. Really appreciate you joining us. Glad to do it. Good luck to the Tigers. Football season is grilling season, and Jack Oliver's Pool Spa and Patio is South Carolina's premier source for the big three. Weber, Traeger, and Big Green Egg Grills. Blackstone Griddles, too. I'm Jack Oliver. Grill all your tailgate favorites to perfection with a premium gas, charcoal, or pellet grill, then top it all off with something sizzling from your Blackstone Griddle. For grills, griddles, patio furniture, hot tubs, and saunas, shop in store or online at Jack Oliver's Pool Spa and Patio, Forest Drive in Columbia, and jackoliverpools.com. If you're in the Eastern Midlands and PD area and you're in any way interested in buying and selling a home, commercial property, land, need to consider reaching out to Uptown Realty. They're based out of Sumter and run by a friend of mine, Patrick Enzer, big Clemson guy, used to cover the Tigers in a newspaper capacity, longtime supporter of Tiger Illustrated, longtime listener to the Dubcast. The home buying process should be an enjoyable experience, so let Patrick and his staff do all the heavy lifting. All you got to do is pick up the phone and call 803-774-0435 or go to UptownRealtySC.com. When you're ready for a complete renovation in your home or business, open the door to more with Harris Home and Harris Commercial. Their local experience team will totally transform any room space from beautiful floor coverings to construction to finished details. Harris handles every step of your renovation process, whether it's a kitchen or living room or an industrial or educational setting, like some of the positively stunning work they've done at Clemson University. Go to discoverharris.com and experience a total renovation transformation from Harris Home and Harris Commercial. Want to share a quick word about Founders Federal Credit Union. If you've been to a sporting event in Clemson, you've probably heard about Founders already. They are the official credit union partner of the Clemson Tigers. In addition to that, all Clemson faculty, staff, and students are eligible for membership as well as IPTA members. Matt Gross is a proud Clemson alum and the vice president for the Clemson market for Founders Federal Credit Union. Matt's office is located beside the Walmart neighborhood market on Old Greenville Highway in Clemson. For more information, go to foundersfcu.com. Okay, joined by my friend David Teal, uh, an institution in the state of Virginia and beyond uh, from the Richmond Times-Dispatch. How you doing, man? I'm doing great, Larry. With all these uh, changes of foot at Clemson, you got another book in the works, man? <laughs> uh, maybe a book no. on, uh, on, on all the crazy stuff you have to do as a reporter to figure out what's fact and, and fiction. It's like a uh-huh. it's part working phones, part private investigator hanging out at airports yes. every now and then <laughs> so yeah crazy i'm not used to it it's been like a, de- a, a decade of total serenity and everything just flipped at once uh within about, about a week so yeah crazy what what's your what, what have your uh i guess impressions from afar been at all this i don't want to say turmoil i guess i should just say turnover 
well, I mean, there's been certainly there's been turmoil in the ACC as a whole when when you look at, at, at some of these changes, but just the turnover there at at Clemson, you know, I think it was at least to, to an outsider such as me, it seemed inevitable that Tony Elliott and Brent Venables were going to become head coaches. Uh, maybe Venables had that Bud Foster career defensive coordinator look about him. Um, but I think we all kind of suspected he'd take a stab at it. And certainly Tony Elliott, I think the big surprise was, was Dan Radakovich moving on to Miami where he started his career as a business manager back in the early eighties. Yeah, that was out of the blue, but not, not that surprising when you start to consider his background there. Uh, the money, mm-hmm. the money involved, of course. Right. Um, I had a um, early on before that was done. Uh, somebody who was around him at Georgia Tech reached out to me and said, "Hey, just FYI, as recently as 2009, I remember Dan sort of openly talking about it. You know, Miami's a place I could end my career and oh. walk off into the sunset. So pretty interesting." I wish they would have told me that before uh, the news came. Right, that, 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 that was that was really prescient of them. Uh, no, it's uh, you know, and you know, if he can get it done there, you know, then he's he's almost viewed as the Miami savior. I mean, they've been essentially irrelevant for going on two decades now. They haven't been able to get the football piece right consistently, save for the, you know, the one year under Mark Richt. And even that one went sideways late after they beat Notre Dame in November at home and then lost the last three games of the season. So if you know if he and Cristobal and that infusion of cash can um, can make it work, then you know he'll uh, he'll have quite the legacy there at one of his alma maters since he went to graduate school. Of course, I guess a year ago or so, um, when the ACC was on the hunt for a new commissioner, Radakovich's mm-hmm. name was was out there, but also. Uh, Clemson's president, Jim Clements, his mm-hmm. name was very much in the mix. From from what I've heard, he had a he had the votes, so to speak, uh, to 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 get that job, but chose to remain at Clemson. I'm I don't recall reading what you wrote around that time, but I know that you're very plugged into uh, to, to the ACC. What's your account of how things went down there before they settled on uh, Jim Phillips? Well, 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 Larry, I actually wrote a story, and I, I forget when during the search it, it published, but identifying Jim Clements as a leading candidate, if not the leading mm-hmm. candidate. And then like a week or so later, he ends up with a new contract at, at Clemson, and issues a statement that says, you know, no, I'm not going anywhere. And I, I looked at my wife. I said, hey, maybe I helped the guy get a raise. <laughs> I, I, don't, I, I don't know. Um, no, I think but, it was more involved. I don't, I don't think it was just – I think he was very much in it. Uh, I think yeah. you were right. I think you were dead on. Yeah, that, that, was, that was certainly my impression. And then, you know, I – 
in, in my mind, if you were going to look at somebody who was a sitting AD, you know, Jim Phillips was among the most respected in the country. And it seemed to me, Larry, that as as qualified as Dan appeared for the, the commissioner job, the presidents were determined to either choose one of their own, such as Jim Clements, or go outside the ACC family. I, I don't believe they ever really seriously considered an in-house athletic director to succeed John Swafford. Yeah, and for Clements, the decision to stay, it, I, I'm guessing he realized that college president at Clemson is so much more in his wheelhouse because a commissioner job is so different. Um, And he's great at fundraising, networking, working with his coaches and all that stuff. And so my guess is that as great as the money, you know, the raise would have been and all that, the profile, I think he's just realized how happy he is where he is doing what he's doing. As you, as you well know, and I'm, I'm sure your listeners do as well, it's a hard job leading the ACC right now, leading any any conference, mind you. But with the long-term ESPN deal in place and really struggling to, to raise new revenue, it's a tough road right now for the ACC. What do you think happens? Or what's the solution? Is it as simple as go win, <laughs> go win in football, uh, just mm-hmm. win? Is is it just really that? Well, that's that's part of it, no, no question. Perhaps a large part of it. I mean, the the easiest solution here, well, not easiest, the um, the, the the one I I, I believe slam dunk solution would be Notre Dame bringing football into the league. But the Irish have no incentive to join the league, which I think helps explain why the ACC is right now resisting a 12-team college football playoff. Because, Larry, if this thing goes to 12 any incentive for Notre Dame to join a conference vanishes because the route to the playoff for an independent becomes so much easier. Whereas if the playoff went to eight with a handful of automatic bids to conference champions, then all of a sudden Notre Dame is getting squeezed and maybe might have to rethink independence. Yeah, I got a kick out of, uh, I guess, last week. I was reading an article from uh, Miami uh, reporter Manny Navarro, who writes for The Athletic, does a great job. And he was just sort of relaying some of the sentiment from the Miami brass about, yeah, they're not very pleased with the ACC's TV contracts, and they there's some chatter. They might, they might want to look around. And I'm like, <laughs> this is hysterical because Miami, right. Miami you could argue – is exhibit A for why the ACC hasn't 
been able to, mm-hmm. uh, to, to, to achieve a better deal because they've face planted yeah. for the better part of two decades on the football field. Yeah. I mean, pe- people often ask Larry and especially back when the ACC was just talking about establishing a network with ESPN. Well, this is all John Swafford's fault. How come the ACC doesn't already have a network like the big 10 and the SEC? And I would, I would tell them, people, have you looked at the state of ACC football lately? Because from 2001 through 2012, that's 12 consecutive seasons, the ACC did not have a single team finish in the top five of the Associated Press poll. Not one. Yeah. I mean, how are you supposed to sell a tele- yourself as a television entity to ESPN or, or any other buyer when football, the economic engine of the entire enterprise, is in the dumper? And that's why I think Florida State's national championship in 2013 was so important to the league. And then following that, you know, soon thereafter, Clemson took the torch and uh, carried it into the playoff era. Yeah, but even then there's some inherent problems because it's just one team over the course of that. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, you look at the ACC. I want to say, as of the SEC championship game going in, the SEC for the third year in a row had a third different team that was undefeated and number one going into the SEC championship game. That's just that's like night and day, uh, and that's exactly yeah. what the ACC needs and what and ex- is exactly what feels a galaxy away uh for them is there i mean hell a year ago at this time we're t- we're saying who can join clemson and now it's like they need uh now there's nobody <laughs> at yeah. this point at least but all right the reason reason i hooked up with you uh i want to get a, 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 a sort of a picture of what it's been like uh since tony elliott arrived there uh, also during the sort of dance that he was doing with Virginia and Duke and what that was like and some of your sort of explanations for that. And um, I guess we could start with you wrote a column in the Richmond Times-Dispatch uh, a few days ago uh, that recounted a, a meeting you had with Tony. You met him in July of 2018, so going into their uh, national championship season, second in, uh, in th- over three years at the NCAA Champion Forum, a career development program for accomplished minority assistant coaches, uh, and Elliot was a part of that. Where was this, and how were you? Um, can you explain how you sort of were able to be a fly on the wall at this thing? Yeah, it was it was really kind of cool, Larry. It was it, it was organized by the NCAA, but also one of the um, lead people in this was John Oliver, the former executive associate AD at Virginia, coincidentally. Mm-hmm. And John had just left the UVA staff and was kind of doing some consulting on the side. But he and I had a relationship from his time in Charlottesville. And he called me up one day and said, Hey, you know, I'm part of this champion forum and we're trying to promote 
minority coaches in, in, into you know assistant coaches in, into head coaching positions, and would love for you to come up to to our forum. And it was held in conjunction with the annual ADs convention, which that summer was held outside of Washington, D.C. in National Harbor, Maryland. And that's only a, a, a few hour drive, hours drive from my home. And so I said, sure. So I motored on up there. And the, the, the two assistant coaches that they let me, as you described, be kind of a fly on the wall for their interactions were Ivan Jasper, the Naval Academy offensive coordinator, and Tony Elliott. And it was just that, you know, they went through mock interviews and then they stood in front of other coaches or former coaches, such as Jim Caldwell, who had you know been in the NFL and been at Wake Forest, and they were standing standing in in front of a of a screen, and they were running back tape, and this and this and that with X's and O's, and explain this and why are you doing this? It got very technical there. And it was and it was really interesting to to watch the entire process as they attempted to help these coaches kind of prepare for the search process that they would face when they went to go get a head coaching job. And so, were you? Was it strictly observing, or were you able to talk to these guys uh, at, at, at points? After after observing them, I stood out in a in a hallway and talked to Tony and Tamika because the the wives were there with them, and also with uh, Ivan Jasper and his wife. And one of the quotes that 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 uh that you got from Elliot that that day in in two thousand eighteen, um presented sort of his big picture vision where he said there are four categories where I think student athletes have to have equal development and that's their athletics, their academics, their social and the spiritual. You have to create a program that has access to all those areas and have the resources in place. What obviously you included that you you thought it important enough to include that. What struck you then uh, about sort of his vision um, in terms of thinking that, Later on, he 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 was cut out. Or well, I guess you thought then he was cut out to be a head coach at that moment. Yeah, I mean, it it, it seemed very genuine and authentic and holistic. And he just struck me really as as someone who not only could talk that talk, but had walked that walk simply through his life journey, talking about the spiritual side. And you and your listeners are very aware of Tony's personal story and how faith guided him after the tragedies of his childhood, including losing his mom when he was only nine. And then, you know, the academic piece, you know, this is a guy who was like a 3-6 student as an engineering major at Clemson. He was all academic ACC. Started out as a walk-on wide receiver and ended up as a captain of the team by the time he was a senior. So as, as Dan Radakovich told me when I talked to him after Virginia announced Tony, 
He said, this isn't a guy who took the elevator to a head coaching job. He climbed the stairs. Mm. You know, he was, an, he was an assistant coach at South Carolina State in Furman. He was a position coach at, at Clemson. And he, then he became a coordinator. So, you know, he hasn't, he hasn't missed many steps here now. I watched his press conference, the introductory press conference, and what struck me was the difference between his prepared remarks that he had written down. He he sort of stumbled a little bit through that. Um, mm-hmm. and I'm like, man, he kind of looks nervous. He's kind of kind of jittery. I, I, I thought so, I thought so too. I thought he was really speaking quickly. Yeah, and then you know, just kind of uncomfortable. But then. Once he ends that and the Q&A starts, he totally opens up and you really see that interactive side of him. And then you're like, okay, okay, this now, now I feel like again, that this guy can, 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 not that, I mean, not that winning the press conference really, I mean, that's so overrated these days, but still, I just thought that was interesting. The, the contrast between the prepared and the spontaneous. It's a, it's a really good, observation larry and i think accurate and to take it one step further afterward hank kurz of the associated press and i we needed a place to work so we went over to john paul jones arena where uva sports information offices are and we were working in a back room there And we were about wrapping up and just sitting around waiting for our editors to give us a read and such. And Jim Daves, the SID in Virginia, brings Tony in to do a radio hit. They wanted to do it on a landline because it's better audio. So Tony does his radio hit, and then he comes back to where we were working, and we just stand around talking. Just yeah. casually for about 15, 20 minutes. And he talked about growing up in Southern California and how football wasn't even on his radar. He was a baseball guy. And Daryl Strawberry was his boyhood athletic hero. And uh, he, he, he talked about, even referenced Michael Vick in Virginia Tech. He said, I remember being on the sideline at the Gator Bowl when Michael Vick you know, <laughs> kicked our butts. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm telling him, well, I'm so old, I was there covering it, coach. <laughs> so he seems, and I guess he, maybe he was, he also visited with the media on signing day, Yeah, uh, I guess yesterday. Um, he did so, not, oh, actually. He didn't. Okay. No, no, those were... Um, those were taped remarks that oh, that's right. provided yeah. to the media. The in-house, uh, in-house guy, yeah. Jeff White, did that. What has been the reception? Because obviously the the clamor or the push for Anthony Poindexter was, I mean, there mm-hmm. it was there. I don't know how big it was. Um, you know, the alum, and he, now here comes this other guy. Obviously, stuff broke down abruptly with Poindexter because it's, I mean, they had told Tony, we're moving on. Sorry. And he's like, okay, that's all good. No worries. And then I guess it was the next night, uh, more than 24 hours later, they call him and they say, we want, we want you to come up to Charlottesville. And he says, okay, I'll I'll come by myself. And they said, no, we want you to bring your family. And obviously that's a a, a strong indicator of, of how serious they are. What, and good gosh, I haven't even talked about Mendenhall's totally abrupt 
exit. So how what, about, how about that? what are the last 11 days? How do you put all this into context and, and make, uh, sort of put, you know, put a bow on it? The whole yeah. Thing? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's been a, it's been a different couple of weeks now and, you know, not to go too inside baseball on you, but, I was driving home, and it's about a 300-mile drive, driving home from Brent Pry's introductory presser at Virginia Tech. (laughs) And I'm about an hour from home, and I get a text. Now, kids don't text and drive. (laughs) when When my phone buzzed, I looked at it. And it was just a guy I know who said, team meeting, 15 minutes. And I thought, oh, boy, you don't call a team meeting to announce staff changes. You call a team meeting to tell them you're gone. And sure enough, within like five minutes, the UVA release hit my inbox and the next thing you know, I'm in a rest area doing a Zoom w- over my phone with the departing head coach of the University of Virginia. Um, and I know it, it blindsided the UVA administration, but I wasn't shocked simply because Bronco Mendenhall is a different cat. He looks at life and college football from 30,000 feet, always has, has always voiced that he believes he has a calling much higher than college football. He's very deep in his Mormon faith. Each of his three sons has served a mission for the church. And it got to the point where in a text group text with some friends, I told people like three weeks ago, sooner rather than later, not thinking it would be this year, mind you, but sooner rather than later, Bronco Mendenhall is going to walk away and he's not going to walk away for another job. He's going to walk away and find something else to do. You said that's this. That's what he did. I did in a text. Wow. What? So yeah. what was that based on just the kind of person he is and the length of time he had been there? Or was it, ba- was it also based on things you had been picking up? Like how did you, how did you form that, that take? It, it, was, it, it was a combination of things. It, it was based on him. But also based on the last couple of years, he was clearly conflicted, Larry, about playing during a pandemic in 2020. Mm. And if his players had not been so adamant about wanting to play, he, he, he would have just as soon said no. He, he just didn't like it at all. He's not terribly comfortable with NIL. He hates the transfer rule, and it it just was wearing on him, I thought. And, hey, 6-6 six and six had to contribute to it. And there were 6-2, and two, 
and right in the thick of the coastal, and then they lose their last four. And if Virginia had gone eight and four instead of six and six, would we be having this conversation? Mm, I suspect not. But I think just all those things put together and the fact that he and his wife are for the first time empty nesters. The kids are grown and they're off doing their thing. And after 30 years in college coaching, he just said, you know, I've been married for 25 of them. My wife has been through the ringer with me. It's time for us to go find something else to do. Speaking of his, his uh, distaste, I guess, for the portal, why I think reasonable people can agree that this was this was the NIL and all that inevitable, you know, with all the money that's being made. It's just, you know, you got coaches, mm-hmm. coaches yeah. getting paid $15 million to sit on their couches, you know, uh, right. being bought out after three years. But why is there no, why is there no room for coaches who like Dabo? Maybe it's just a Dabo thing because maybe, I mean, I don't hear a whole lot of clamor when Mendenhall maybe expresses his distaste for the portal or Mac Brown or whoever, but Dabo yesterday, he said something that I think is kind of reasonable. (laughs) He said, it's chaos right now, tampering galore, adults manipulating young men. Education is the last thing now. He he said he supports the one-year sit for transfer, the one-year penalty. And he said you could get that year back if you graduate so you don't really lose that year. He said he wants to keep the focus on graduation and education. Man, my Twitter, that that, that tweet, I mean, it was just savage like 99 percent of the response is just blistering and what am i missing like is it seems like and please correct me if i'm wrong seems like a lot of the national media voices were so um they were beating the drum for this so much for nil for free player movement that now it seems that some of them they're they're so locked into that stance that they're not as willing to to have a conversation about wait a minute what about all these hundreds of players now who don't have anywhere to go what's going to mm-hmm. happen to them that's a really long-winded question but i think you get my drift what what is your take on this whole the the conversation i guess i should say and the impatience or revulsion for any Anybody, I guess mainly Dabo, who kind of prefers the education model and he's worried about the graduation rates going down as they absolutely will uh, with more players transferring and not really finding homes and, and things like that. Well, first of all, Larry, I have heard Dabo's remarks from Bronco Mendenhall many mm-hmm. times, mm-hmm. Almost, almost to the letter. So it's, it's a very familiar refrain in that regard. I think the, the problem with that stance is, and I, I think it's a very reasonable discussion to have, and I don't understand the vitriol that you've described on Twitter, and, I, and, and I, I've experienced the same. But the problem with the NCAA was this rampant inconsistency. There were only five sports 
that did not have freedom of movement. And that was football, men's and women's basketball, baseball, and men's ice hockey. Go Mm -hmm. figure. Mm -hmm. But all other athletes could transfer and always have been able to transfer without a one-year penalty. But yet these five sports were singled out. Why? No, No one was... No one ever expressed that in a coherent manner. And then when you have the Supreme Court of the United States, which can't agree on darn near anything, (laughs) unanimously rebuke the NCAA for its treatment of athletes, it, 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 it becomes untenable right now in this political and legal climate, most important legal climate, to try to put guardrails on these young people. You're just not going to be able to do it. And if you attempt to, you risk the wrath of not only the courts, but also the federal government, i.e. Congress. But now here we are, and it seems like the volume of players in the portal, there, there aren't enough spots for them to, to land somewhere. Mm-hmm. Is, is that <laughs> becoming untenable? Yes. In, in its own right. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I, at some point, Larry, there's going to be a correction. People, young people are, are going to realize at the risk of being cliche, that the grass isn't always greener. And that sometimes we actually have to persevere through some adversity, exercise some patience, and not always be looking to go through the fast food drive through You think that happens so, organically? I hope so. That could very well be incredibly naive but i don't see any other way it's going to happen yeah. other than or organically yeah mike farrell or i guess the twitter feed ncaa transfer portal as of the 15th as of yesterday says coming into signing day which isn't as huge with transfers as it is with high school recruits 764 fbs scholarship players have entered the portal since august 1st 17 have officially withdrawn, which leaves 747. Of that 747, 123 have found a new home, which is 16.4% of the players. And that's what, wow. you know, Dabo, his comments yesterday, he really feels for those players. And mm-hmm. his point is, is, you just watch graduation rates. They're going to go way down. And I think he does, you know, he gets called a hypocrite and all that, but I think there's genuine um, concern uh, for, for, those, for those guys. And um, as of today, today's, uh, today's graduation day at Clemson, and Ross Taylor, the communications guy, said, told me earlier today, as, after today, um, of 315 eligible senior lettermen and early graduates in Dabo Sweeney's 13 full years as head coach, 309 will have earned a degree during their time at Clemson. 309 of 315. 
That's amazing. Yeah. And so I'm sorry, but I mean, I'm somewhat cynical about, you know, pushing athletes through, you know, school and, and eligibility maintenance and all that. But mm-hmm. man, I know so many former players who played under Dabo Sweeney and I talked to them over the years and that degree, that experience, you're, you're, you're going to get a big argument from them. If, if, if you're out there, you know, saying Dabo's just in it for the money or just in it for, for what's good for him, because I, it's just not the, the, the facts and, and the, the individual accounts from people who have played under him just don't support that. Well, and I believe, well, I know that 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 mindset that Dabo has and that Tony Elliott obviously has was so attractive to Carla Williams in UVA. There's just no doubt. David Teal, what what do you so? What's his biggest challenge in in, in closing uh, that he faces? Is it the facilities? Is it the academic uh, the uh, requirements? Maybe some of the things that Poindexter speculatively um, had hangups with. Well, facilities are are certainly an issue. Hopefully, for Virginia's sake, they will soon be upgraded. They have a plan for a $65 million football complex. They're, they're attempting to, to, to raise the money and hope to have it built within the next couple of years. That would be a huge help. I think in the short term, a bigger challenge is just building the roster because mm-hmm. they signed only 10 players yesterday, Larry, and not a single offensive lineman. You talk about having to hit the portal. Mm. UVA is going to have to hit the portal because not only did they sign no offensive linemen, two of their starting offensive linemen are in the portal. One might end up at Clemson. Which one is that? Haskins or Olu? Olu. Really? Yeah, he 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 was in Clemson. Uh, we just reported that earlier today. He was in Clemson a few days ago. How about that? He was, he's also visited Michigan. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's a really good center. He's a, he's a big-time player now. So I and can't blame him for looking at his, at his options. But you know, the, the immediate challenge is to, is to fortify the roster. And what he has to do, Larry, is really energize the base – because for all of Bronco's accomplishments, and I know there were only 500 this year and 500 last year, but they were in the Orange Bowl and won the Coastal in 2019. And even during that, they couldn't remotely come close to selling out Scott Stadium on a routine basis. Mm. And Scott Stadium is 61.5 capacity. It's not that big. And even when when UVA beat Virginia Tech for the first time in 16 years to win its first ever Coastal Division title, that was at home. And that crowd was still about 15% less than capacity. Oh, man. I didn't know that. Yeah. 
I mean, I can't, that, sh- that should not happen. And I, and I know people have entertainment options these days and the home viewing experience and all that. But when you can't fill your stadium for that large a game, you know, that's, that's a problem. And I think that's where that side that you observed of Tony Elliott during the Q&A, that engaging side of him, I think that's really going to play in, in Charlottesville. And, and Bronco Mendenhall, for all his assets and all his football acumen and all his integrity, Bronco was, I don't want to say he was isolated, but you know he, he, he lived out on, on a big ranch property and was very comfortable out there and would bring recruits out there. But Bronco was not out, at least as far as I know, out among the people in Charlottesville glad-handing it much. And I think that's what this program needs. Really interesting. Seems like a great fit, but also seems like he has his uh, he has his work cut out for him at uh, at UVA. David, man, always enjoy talking with you. Your work is fantastic, and I uh, really appreciate you sharing your time with us. Larry, thanks for having me. Happy holidays to you and yours and all your listeners, my friend. All right, man, those are two of the best right there. David Teal, Barry Trammell, really appreciate them sharing their time with us. Also appreciate the support of our very loyal sponsors. And then finally, last but best, (laughs) thanks to all of you for hitting play every week. Be safe. Cheers.